Well, again, welcome everybody. It is good to welcome all of you to Pathway, whether in the room or online or in the classic venue or on our Moon campus, wherever you're taking it in. It is good to be together. As we get started today, I've got a question for you. Would you like to know what the future holds? Okay, we have some yes, we have some no, some differences of opinion there. Would you like to know, maybe if you're single, who you're going to marry, or whether or not Kenny Pickett's going to turn out to be a good NFL quarterback? I think we'd all kind of like to know the answer to that one. How about what your future health holds? Would you want to know if there was a way to know that you're going, whether or not you're going to die within the next four years? There's actually a study that has been done, a test that's been put out, put together by researchers through the San Francisco, what's it called, San Francisco Medical Center. They developed this test that predicts that with an 81% accuracy. And so I looked into this a little bit, and what it's doing is assessing 12 different risk factors that people have. And you start at zero, and you, st- and you add if you have that risk factor in your life, and if you get over five, then things are starting to not look all that good. And I, and I came to uh, see that I was kind of bummed that it said that I had to add two points just because I'm a guy. And so that didn't get me off started very well, and many of you obviously would be in that same position. You had to add a couple of points if you had diabetes or if you have a history of smoking. You had to add points if you had trouble remembering things. Or there was, there was another one that slips my mind right now. But, but anyway, you had to keep adding these things on to see how long you were going to Live. I decided to take a couple other online assessments also just to see how those would compare. I took one, it said that I was going to die at the age of 81. I took another one, it said it was, I was going to die at the age of 101. There's obviously a great difference between those two. Thankfully, none of them say, said I was going to die by Thanksgiving. So, at least there's a little something future there to look forward to. But this particular San Francisco test has been put together to help people, quote, get a firmer sense for what the future may hold. And if you're a person who likes to know what the future may hold, then you're going to love today's text. As we come back to the book of Daniel, we've been studying our way through it for a number of weeks now, and uh, we've arrived at Daniel chapter 7. So open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 or your Bible app. There are Bibles underneath the seats if you're here in the room, and uh, you can have access to this. We are not going to put any of these verses on the screen unless it's outside of this, and there's not many of those today. So you're going to want to have this in your lap. Also have that outline that's in the notes, and you can fill that in there. You can transfer it over into your journal. However you want to do that is great. But Daniel 7 is where we're going to be. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are history. They're history. They're looking back on events that took place. It talks about Daniel in the lion's den. It talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in the fiery furnace. It talks about King Nebuchadnezzar, who is this very vast and powerful king over his vast and powerful empire, which was the Babylonian Empire. All of this is history. We look back. We come to chapter 7, and all of a sudden we're dealing with prophecy. We're talking about things that are coming in the future, at least from the vantage point from which Daniel is writing. Now, what is future for him, much of it is actually history for us, but this is where we turn our attention, a focus on prophecy or the road ahead is what we're going to be talking about today. The road 
ahead. Now, the prophecy we find in Daniel covers a period of time from when he wrote forward for the next several hundred years. Covered a number of things that took place during that period of time. It was, of course, all future for him. For us, much of that is now history. But Daniel also, in these chapters we're going to look at today, and there's three of them, and there's a lot of material, and we're going to be flying through it, and so I apologize for that in advance, but we're going to be, we're going to be moving as we make our way along, all right? So some of it looks way down the road, things that are yet future for us, things that are still coming all the way down to the return of Jesus Christ for his second coming. Now, I'd love to tell you that by the time we get to the end of the book of Daniel, that you will have answers to everything that you want about what is yet ahead, that you will know the year that Jesus is going to return, that, that you would know the identification of the Antichrist, that you would know all of that. I would love to be able to tell you that. And there are many places that you can go. You can go on the internet. You can find plenty of people who will do that. That's where books like 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is going to happen in 1988 were written. Okay? Obviously, they didn't do so well in their prediction because that didn't happen. And there are many other people that you can turn to. And you, but that's really not what Daniel's writing about. Yes, he is pushing, he is looking forward, but it's not so that you might be able to set times and dates. And nobody's gotten it right, obviously, to this point. It's for a different purpose. That's not even really the purpose behind why he is writing, even though this is prophecy. But we're going to dig in and we're going to see what is the purpose behind it and what might it tell us. We're going to dive in and under, try to understand what the things are that we are being told, which is a tall task to say the least. Daniel is writing, coming to try to understand a bit of his purpose in writing. He's writing to a group of people who have now been in captivity for up to 70 years. They're away from their homeland. They're wondering about their homeland. Are they ever going to go back to it? They're wondering about their future. They're wondering about the, the faith of the nation that they came from. And where's all that going? And is that going to be restored? Or are we just going to be stuck here in Babylon? And, and what's the, they needed some encouragement. And what Paul, or excuse me, Paul, what Daniel is writing about is that which he believes can help to bring them some encouragement. And so we need to recognize what the purpose is here, what it was seeking to accomplish for them, and what it might accomplish for us as well. Because we're a people also who live in times and live in circumstances where we wonder about the future, don't we? We wonder what's going to happen. We wonder what's going to come about. Well, we might be able to find our own measure of comfort and encouragement in this as we look at it. And so the place that we get started with this, a few different points we want to make. First truth that brings us encouragement is to find hope through a perfect track record. And we can do that. Find hope through a perfect track record. Someone's track record is important because it gives you an indication of what their future performance is going to be like. Let me give you an example. Take, for example, this thoroughbred racehorse. All right? This horse's name is Zippy Chippy. I'm not making that up. It's Zippy Chippy, and you'll even see it here in a second because the reason this is on my mind is because it was just in the news because this horse died. And so they were having a celebration for Zippy Chippy as he passed away on all of his accomplishments. They were celebrating his perfect track record. Unfortunately, his legacy wasn't that he was very zippy. In fact, it was just the opposite of that. The problem for him was he was always running in the back of the pack. 
In fact, he always came in last. His career record was a perfect 0 and 100. Entered 100 races and lost every one of them. When Zippy was in a race, you knew what you were going to get because of his track record. All right? And that same thing proves true in many other realms of life as well, including Daniel's prophecy here that we are going to be taking a look at, which is actually God's prophecy given to Daniel that Daniel then passes on to us and to others as well. He now, if we had somebody, as we think about this and, and the nature of prophecy or predicting the future, if you ran into somebody who was able to predict it with perfect accuracy a third of the time or a half of the time, you'd be really amazed at their ability, wouldn't you? I would be. That would be absolutely amazing. But when it came to the real circumstances of your life where the stakes were particularly high, you wouldn't have a whole lot of trust in that person if the best that they can do is 50%, right? Right? And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, how reliable is Daniel's prophecy? Can we really rest in what he says to us? And one of the beauties of the fact that we are looking on his prophecy as history to us is we can take a look and say, how did he do? How well did he predict that which was to come? Because so much of it we can look back on and see. So now, as Daniel begins in chapter 7, he gives us a historical marker. So let's go ahead and jump into this. He says that it took place in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, we have a lot of first years this, and this king came, and that king went, and so let me just put this in a context of a bit of a timeline that might be useful to you. We've talked about these things before, so some of it should sound kind of familiar. So Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful king, comes into Jerusalem and begins to sack the city in 605 B.C., and this is when Daniel and his three Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are carted off to Babylon. They become exiles in 605. Now, the city was ultimately and finally and completely destroyed. The temple destroyed in 586, 587, which is when the last of the exiles were carried off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is continuing to reign until 562 when he, his life ends, and so obviously his reign ends as well. After that, there are a flurry of kings that, that come in. Eventually, it lands on a king named Belshazzar in 553. And he reigns for a number of years till 539 when actually he's defeated. The whole Babylonian kingdom is defeated there in 539 and Babylon falls at that point. And the Medo-Persian take, kingdom takes over. Chapter 7 takes place in Belshazzar's first year, or 553. And so what this is telling us is that, that Daniel doesn't lay out all of these events in exactly chronological order because now we're jumping backwards just a little bit to pick up this first year. And it was then that Daniel has this very unusual and this vivid dream. And so this is where things start to get a little bit weird. So, so hang in there, and I think uh, you'll, you'll figure it out, all right? In his dream, Daniel sees four strange beasts. The first of those was like a lion with wings. The second one was a bear that had ribs in its mouth. The third one was a leopard that had four heads. It's starting to sound a little bit like a Dr. Seuss book, isn't it? Yeah, just a little bit. And then there's this fourth one that he can't describe quite the same way because it doesn't re resemble something that he really knows. And so he just says it has, it has these iron teeth and it has these ten horns as well. And another little one that grew out of those. Verse 8 says, this horn, this little one, had eyes like the eyes of a human being 
and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So while Daniel is taking all of this in, trying to figure out, well, what's all that mean? What's this about? All of a sudden, the scene changes, and now we're in heaven. As he goes on in chapter 7, verse 9, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who's that sound like? God the Father. His clothing, clothing was as white as snow. Verse 10, A river of fire was flowing, coming out from him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that this horn was speaking, this little horn. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Verse 13, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man. This is somebody else. Who's this sound like? Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will, never, that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. A clear picture of Jesus who's given authority and will come and will reign for all eternity is what he is seeing here in heaven. But his mind, while he's marveling at that, continues to be thinking back on these beasts as well. And so we find that he actually gives us an interpretation of what he saw here. Verse 15 says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. Now, some people question the reliability of verse 16 because you here you have a guy who is voluntarily going to ask directions. And so they say, you know, this can't possibly be real, what is written here. But I think we can trust it. So let's just go on. Uh, Daniel goes on to explain that these beasts are kingdoms. In fact, they're the same kingdoms. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's vision back in chapter 2 where there's the multi-metaled statue and that each one of the parts of that statue represented a different kingdom? Well, here he's talking about the same kingdoms. Those same four kingdoms he was identified are identified here, only now they're called beasts instead of different metals. All right, so you have the first of those, the lion, that represents the Babylonian kingdom. You have got then the bear that represents the Medo-Persian kingdom. You've got the leopard that represents the Grecian kingdom. And you've got these iron teeth, the bronze, bronze claws that represent the last of the kingdoms or the Roman kingdom. These are the ones that are in view. And from our vantage point, we can look back because all of those kingdoms have come and gone. So is it how, how Daniel said it was going to happen? Yes, it's exactly how Daniel said it was going to happen. So we have the benefit of looking and seeing the perfect track record of God laying out, this is where we're going, this is what's going to rise up, and who's going to fall, and who's going to take over at different points, and that's exactly the way that we know from history that things unfolded. A perfect track record is what we see. Now, in this passage, Daniel wants to know a bit more. He's focusing in on this fourth beast and specifically this last horn and these horns by the way that you see at various points uh, those are all representing different people you've got kingdoms like the bear is a kingdom or maybe I should say we hear this last one this beast this fourth beast he's got these ten horns well those are all individuals who reigned in the point of that kingdom and now here's a last one that rises up it is it's talking about 
And Daniel's interested in this one. It's the one who speaks boastfully and deceives and and wages war against the saints of God. And verse 25 says that he oppresses the saints for a time, times, and half a time. Time means a year. So you've got time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Which, if you know prophecy, if you know end times events, that probably rings a bell for you because there's going to be a period called the tribulation, the last half of which, three and a half years, is going to have the revelation of this antichrist who comes on the scene, who works against the people of God, he works against God himself, sets himself up to be God, and it's this one who is being described for us right here. And so that's what Daniel has in point. He's looking off. This is the first place in the scriptures that we have this Antichrist that is really starting to be defined for us and described to us. So it says here, however, that uh, he's not going to ultimately have his way. Verse 26 goes on to say, but the court will sit, the rulers in heaven will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. This is a great and ultimate victory that is being described. But nonetheless, as we look at Daniel, Daniel's not rejoicing. He's not celebrating. This is something to celebrate, but he's not. He's, he's troubled in his spirit. And why is that? Well, the reason is because he recognizes that this is prophecy. He's recognizing these things are coming, and that's going to be no fun for anybody. He's like, people are going to have to actually live through this. And it's going to be a terrible time that is going to come. And so Daniel is very subdued in the way that he's receiving this because of the difficult days that are ahead. And while this is going through Daniel's mind, we turn the page over to chapter 8. And as we do so, I told you we were going to be moving along. We see that he's again receiving a word from God. The first revelation he received was through a dream while he was in his bed. This one is a vision he receives while he is awake. A little bit different, but still the same sort of spirit of things. Daniel tells us that this vision took place during the third year of Belshazzar's reign. So that would tick it along a few from where the, the last one happened. Now we're about 551 B.C. This time, it's just two animals who are being pointed to here. But interestingly enough, these two animals are representing kingdoms, just like they were previously. And these two are also representing some of the same kingdoms we've already seen. He talks about first that there is this ram that rises up with two horns, two different leaders, right? And he, that, that rises up, and that's the Medo-Persian kingdom that was going to come and follow Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately the Babylonian kingdom. And there's also this goat that rises up that is the Grecian kingdom. And he starts to focus in his attention on that. And there's, there's one horn that rises up when the, when the Grecian kingdom rises up. And then that sort of gives way to four different horns. And then eventually that gives way to one more. Those are, sounds weird. Just think these are different leaders, different rulers that are rising up along the way. All right? And so that's what he is talking about here. He's giving us then the interpretation of what all of this means. He knows in his mind this is weird, so I'm going to have to explain this if only I knew. And he does because somebody comes and interprets it for him. And guess who it is? It's the angel Gabriel. 
Of all the people to show up in this book, here comes Gabriel. He was always a messenger on behalf of God. And so he shows up now to deliver this understanding of what is going on. It's his first appearance in all of the Bible. And we're told through him that the Grecian kingdom went through a series of changes in leadership. And one horn goes to four horn, goes to one, right? And this represents people that we know actually were raised up and led in that particular Grecian kingdom. The first one that comes on the scene is a guy named Alexander the Great. You've probably heard his name. Very powerful, very strong leader, but not, didn't last very long. A very hard life, and so he, he actually dies at the age of 32. And filling the vacuum there come these four other kings, these four other horns that are spoken of. But the one that's really on Daniel's mind is this last horn that ultimately rises up. And indeed, historically, there was, that's what happened. One Alexander rises up, then another four that rise, and then there's another one that comes. And that's who he's focusing in on. And there is an actual historical figure by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who comes on the scene. He was nicknamed Antiochus Epimenes, which means actually madman. And it's, it's not a very quaint nickname, not like Snookums or something, but it, it is very descriptive of who he is and what he did. He was a ruthless king, did great evil. And by this point, the temple in Jerusalem, remember, it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and now the people were deported. Well, by this time in history, by the time that Antiochus rises up, we're already hundreds of years down the road. So the temple has been, we're like 168 B.C., or right in that neighborhood. And so by, the, by this time, the temple has been rebuilt by Nehemiah. The city has been rebuilt, and worship has been restored there in the temple. Well, this guy comes along, and he desecrates the temple by setting up false gods in the temple and by offering pigs on the altar in the temple. As you probably know, pigs were abhorrent to the Jews. They were against God's law. They were unclean animals. And so for him to do this, it's described for us in verse 13 as the rebellion that causes desolation. If you know your Bible, that probably kind of rings a bell as a, as a phrase. Only you might have heard it or remember it as the abomination that causes desolation. This is a type. This is a foreshadowing, an event that is pointing forward to another event ultimately that is coming. I told you this can be confusing and that there's a whole lot here, but if you just follow, I think you can pick up on it. In this case, it's pointing forward as a type to another cleansing that is going to happen and another desecration that comes to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this one again is jumping forward to later on, things yet to come. And of that, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, 15 where he says, speaking of those last days, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. All right, so we're now jumping into the New Testament where Jesus is referring back to Daniel in the circumstance that he's talking about right here, and we see it in Antiochus Epiphanes, and then ultimately one day this is pointing forward to something that yet will happen again. So here again, we have a picture of the end times when this guy is a real historical figure, but he's foreshadowing something else. He's foreshadowing the Antichrist who will come. In fact, Gabriel, here with Daniel, actually says in verse 17, he says to Daniel, Daniel, understand that the vision concerns the time of the 
end. It says that the Antichrist, verse 11, it set itself up to be great, as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. But eventually, the sanctuary was going to be restored. Both historically, that happened, and also future, that will happen. And there's a celebration that takes place among devout Jews every year, celebrating and remembering this occasion that happened, this, re- this reconciliation, essentially, of the temple, the cleansing that goes on. And that feast or that celebration is called Hanukkah. And so that will be celebrated here before very long. But it's remembering back to this circumstance that is going on in Daniel. All right. So as Daniel's dream and vision make clear, there are troubling times to come, but that God's going to have the ultimate victory. And there's no reason to doubt what is going to come. We can have confidence in that what God says is going to happen is going to happen. Why? Because he's got a perfect track record. Everything that he's declared will happen has happened. Or the only prophecies that have not been fulfilled that have been made by God or that God has given to man who who brought forward are ones that are slated for a future fulfillment. He's got a perfect track record. And so Daniel's saying because of that, we can rest and we can have confidence in the midst of whatever comes our way, whatever we are facing, however evil the folks who are, who are around us, however evil that we can have confidence because God is accomplishing his purposes and he always will and that it is headed ultimately for Jesus' victory. So, as we consider this road ahead, we can find hope through a perfect track record and as the text goes on, we also see we can find comfort through submission. This is very important. Find comfort through submission. This takes us to chapter 9 now. And once again, Daniel is giving us a historical marker. He says this took place in the first year of Darius the Mede. So this is an important year, 539 B.C., 538 B.C. This is right when the transition happens between the Babylonian kingdom and the Medo-Persian kingdom. Darius the Mede Medo-Persian kingdom, comes and sits on the throne. It's kind of that same year. This, incidentally, is also the year when Daniel had his lion's den experience that we talked about quite a bit last year. So as you see on the timeline, that's where this all falls, just to kind of keep it in some context. So verse 2, chapter 9, goes on and says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. This is good news, and here's why. If you remember, when Daniel comes and is, is carried off. When he comes to Babylon, he's deported from Jerusalem. When the city is destroyed, it's 605 B.C. Daniel is about 15 years old at that point. Now, at this point, when this is transpiring, he's pushing about 85 at this point. So you can do the math. It's almost been 70 years. Daniel knows that this, this uh, destruction, this exile, being away from Jerusalem, it's only going to last 70 years. And so he's like, this is great news. I mean, we're almost there. It's almost time for us to go back to Jerusalem. You would think that it's time for a party. You would think that it would be time for him to run out into the streets and declare to everybody who would listen, to all the Jews, that that time was almost over. But that's not Daniel's response. 
It's not his response. Verse 3 tells us what he does. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. It hardly sounds like a party. Not at all. That's because Daniel doesn't want to presume on the compassion and the faithfulness of God. Now, yes, he completely believes it. He believes that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. He's been pointing out, he's been recognizing God's perfect track record all along as well. It's not that he doesn't believe it, but he's not taking the, any sort of posture like, well, well, we can kind of do whatever we want. We can go off and party. We can stop being vigilant. We can stop watching for, for what is ultimately coming because of what God has told us is coming. We, we, we can just sort of relax now because the time's almost over and pretty soon we'll be restored to our land. He's like, I don't want to pursue on that. I don't want to just negate the, the faithfulness of God. I want to continue to lean into that and, and pursue and cooperate together with the will and with the word of God. And so this is an act of submission on his part. And he prays on behalf of all of the Jews. Because here's the thing. He had a vantage point from which he could see what is going on among the Jews there in Babylon. And he knows that they're not living the way that they ought to be living. Remember, uh, the lion's share of the reason why they end up being defeated in Jerusalem and are carried off into exile is because they were living wayward lives, lives that had nothing to do with God. They were turning their back on God, and, and so that's already in their spirit. That's already in their heart. Now they're in exile. Maybe for a little while they would have sort of woken up, but by this point, the text actually goes on to tell us, if you read all the way through this prayer in chapter 9, it tells us that they had fallen away again, and they're living far away from God one more time and the fact that they've been living for 70 years some of them in this pagan culture doesn't help them out at all either so Daniel prays in submission and humility and confession on behalf of the people so that God would indeed pour out his mercy they've made it this long and it's like God we need you to pour out your mercy we need you to follow through on the things that you said that you will do and so he is praying in that way and his prayer breaks down into three parts and this is a model prayer whenever you want to pray for yourself whenever you want to pray for our church whenever you want to pray for our nation when there are times it's like I need to pray for what's going on around here this is a model prayer. breaks down into three parts. The first part is confession. First part is confession. He prays at the end of verse 4, We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. And he just keeps going on in that same theme. He knew that the sin of the people was great, but he doesn't point any fingers. He just gets in there with them and he says, We have sinned. We need to confess our sins. We need to come to you in humility. And that's what he does. Even though we haven't read anything at all that Daniel has actually done that is sin, he just jumps right in and says, we have sinned. When it comes to sin, there's no reason to split hairs and pray condescending prayers about anybody or, or about our enemies even, because when it comes to sin, while theirs might be different than yours, it's all damning. It's all an offense to God regardless of what it is or who did it or whether it's against your, you know, one of your big sins that they do and you just do the little, it's all in the same category when it comes to being an offense toward God. So it starts with confession. Second part of Daniel's prayer is acknowledging that God's judgments are right, that they are just, that they are fair. He prays the Lord, verse 14, the Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed 
Him. When we refuse to acknowledge that the discipline we're experiencing is what we deserve and is actually accomplishing something good in us, we're just giving ourselves reason or a justification to continue to walk away from Him. We're sort of giving ourselves a pass if we aren't willing to recognize that what God is bringing our way is what we deserve, or if we start to accuse Him for being unfair, we're dismissing this part of what Daniel is acknowledging. Very important part of prayer is that the things that we're experiencing are things that we deserve. Confession, and then this prayer about God's justice, and then the third part of Daniel's prayer is pleading for mercy. Verse 18, give ear, our God, And here, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Daniel knows that their blessing is tied directly to God's mercy, so he leads people in humility before God, seeking that his mercy might fall. Not saying, we deserve you to be kind to us, or we have done this, or we have done that, that that deserves that you would look on us with favor. It's none of that. He says, we deserve nothing. Whatever we get, we recognize is your mercy. Lord, pour out your mercy. He's praying. So, with that, while Daniel is still praying, Gabriel shows up again, (laughs) and he says, I've got another word for you. Thank you for that prayer. That was awesome. Now, I've got another word for you, that is talking more about the road ahead. And this road is way ahead. This is stuff that is still future for us. These are some of the verses right here at the end of verse 9 that people focus in on, those who are interested in in prophecy and date setting and and arguing about what's the future going to look like and and, uh, not just, you know, ones who wrongly try to set dates, but those who are interested in, in what's that future going to look like. And it's here that we come to learn that we can find confidence in God's victory. So let's take a look at this. These final verses of Daniel 9, again verses 24 to 27, have often been called the backbone of biblical prophecy. And what we have here is a large span of time over which prophecies have been made. And we've already taken a look at many of those, some of those that are historical. Well, there's some of this that is yet future as well. This is giving us the big picture. Of course, there have been many different interpretations that have been offered, and offered by highly respected scholars, theologians, fellow believers in Christ. So we need to move forward humbly as we take a look at what these verses say and what we might determine would be the interpretation of what these verses have to say. Because Even though I'm saying there's a wide variety of interpretation, many of those, though on different ends of an extreme, are from people who you would highly respect, who we're going to be spending all of eternity with. It's not just that this is talking about there's those who have this right and there are a bunch of other crackpots. There are those who are very much people that we can and should and do have fellowship with who are at different points along this spectrum. So we need to approach this humbly. We need to try to take a look at, well, what does it say? And let's see what we might be able to understand based on what it does say. Verse 24 gives us a summary of what's to come. It says, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. All right, 
Let's, let's see what we can do with this. The 77s it talks about here are years, okay? So when it says there's a seven, it's talking about a period of seven years. So there's 70 of those. So 70 times seven years is 490. That's the number that we're talking. The number of years that we're talking about here is 490. And in those 490 years, what he says during the 77s, these things are going to happen. And he just listed them for us. There were six of them. Did you notice them right there in verse 24? It's the holy city to finish transgression and an end to sin, atonement for wickedness, coming of everlasting righteousness, seal up prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. That wasn't is God's plan for his holy people. That's his plan for what's going to happen during those 490 years. So you might say, well, a lot more than 490 years have passed since Daniel wrote this, and so all of this must be history. All of this must have happened already, and that would make sense. And some people interpret it that way. If only it was just that simple, and if only it was that easy. You might have to ask yourself then, if, all right, if, if all of them have passed, ask yourself, have all of those six things then taken place that he says are going to happen during the 490 years? Has there been an end to sin? Are we experiencing everlasting righteousness? Well, maybe on the moon campus, but for the rest of us, no. We're, we're not doing really all that well in this regard. If we just look around, that's obvious. So we might ask then also, well, then when did the 490 years start counting? Maybe we were supposed to start it later, or maybe we're supposed to start it sometime into the future. When did it start? Well, the Scriptures, verse 25, actually says that the 69 sevens, or 483 years, starts with the decree that was given that Nehemiah followed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And if you go and you do all of the calculations, and you work it out, and you move it forward from when that decree came, where you end up, after those 69 sevens, is A.D. 32, A.D. 33, which is right when Jesus died. It's right when Jesus went to the cross, the end of those 69 weeks. This is where a lot of disagreement comes in, because there are some who believe that the 70th week immediately followed on the heels of the 69th week. And if that happened, then it would have been completed a couple thousand years ago, within seven years of when Jesus went to the cross. And there are many fellow believers that you have, people that you will see in heaven, who believe that that's what happened. This is actually what's known as the amillennialist belief or point of view. Their belief is not that there is going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ when he's going to come later on and set that up, and then a thousand years is going to happen. This is the amillennial. It's saying that there's not a literal millennium that is ultimately going to happen. And again, there are people you are going to be shoulder to shoulder with in heaven. This is a valid approach and interpretation to the scriptures that we have. There's another very popular belief, probably more popular among most of you, that is also very viable, and it's known as premillennialism. That's a different point of view altogether. This group of people believe that there's been a pause, a timeout after week 69 while things are getting prepared for that last seven to actually come about, for the 70th seven to be ultimately lived out. They believe that there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ where he will come and where he will 
rule. For those folks or people who hold to that particular timetable, those final seven years have not yet happened, but they could happen at any point. In those seven years, the 70th week of Daniel is understood to be the tribulation, the tribulation time, when the Antichrist ultimately will come, and during the time, times, and half a time, the last three and a half years, well, he, where he will rise up, and he'll proclaim himself to be God, and he will lead astray many people, and, and on and on. There are many things that are written about the Antichrist. If you want some extra credit reading later, go read Revelation chapter 13, and it'll tell you more on this. But at the end of that final seven, he will meet, the Antichrist will meet his demise, and he'll be defeated by Jesus. That's the message of verse 27 of chapter 9, as well as Revelation 20, 19, excuse me, 19, 20, which says that he will be thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And with that, the 77s of Daniel 9 will be over, and Christ's millennial kingdom will be ushered in. All clear? All right, great. Okay. All right, it, there, I know. It, there, there's more arguments than what we could possibly even get to if we only studied those verses. And uh, I'd encourage you to go and to read more. Be careful of your source that you're reading. Don't just, you know, plug in 70 weeks of Daniel and read the first thing that pops up on the internet and, uh, you know, find some reputable source and um, go ahead and study this. It would be important. But it would be Wonderful if we could say with 100% certainty what every bit of Daniel's prophecy means, the exact timetable behind it all, but we aren't given that sort of clarity. And, and that's okay. God, for his purposes, saw fit to reveal this to us behind the veil of beasts and behind the veil of animals. Could it possibly be that he did so because there's no desire on his part for us to understand this is the year that it's going to happen. Because what would we do if we knew that? We have a year, and that year is 500 years from now. We'd be like, well, I don't really feel all that much urgency about living, you know, and watching and being ready and making sure that my life is prepared for when Jesus returns because it's not going to happen while I'm here. Could it possibly be? We read in that Paul and the New Testament apostles, they believed that Jesus was going to be returning again before their lives were over. We don't know. In setting dates, there is no benefit to us in doing so, but there is a benefit in being watchful. Could it be that he really wants to set us up for examining the road ahead, knowing that Jesus is going to return and though we don't know when, we know that that day is coming, and we need to be prepared for when that day arrives. I believe so. So just as it moved Daniel, may it move us to respond in the same way, not just to rejoice and celebrate about the fact that there is this victory coming. We should be happy about that, but it should also bring us this sort of this troubled spirit like it brings Daniel, knowing that people are going to have to live this through this. We may be some of those people. Our loved ones may be some of those people. And then it would give us, instead of just celebrating how we're on the winning side, to get on our knees out of concern for those who aren't, for those who have yet to come to the place where they've bowed their knee to Jesus or even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that we would come, as Daniel does, with confession on our heart and on our mind and in our spirit, 
to submit ourselves to Him. That we might recognize that whatever He does is just and it is good, that He is sovereign over all things and plead for His mercy that might be poured out on us for our benefit. Remember, Daniel is writing to a group of people who needed to be encouraged, who needed to understand that, yes, God ultimately is going to work this out, and in the meantime, we can have the confidence that God has a perfect track record, so we know that what he says he will do, he will do. I believe that that very much is the case. He's writing for our encouragement, not so that we can argue about exactly when it's happening, what the year is, what the context is going to be, but rather so that we would be watchful and encouraged by the fact that we serve a God who is holy and who is just and who is going to accomplish all of his ultimate purposes. May that be ultimately what we take away so that we might be on our knees going forward for our benefit and for the benefit of those who are around us. And just as Daniel seeks to to draw in everybody possible, that we might as well that we might not point a finger and say, well, you're not, among the, you're not among the saved. You're going to be on that other side. Shame on you. But rather, as God is patient, that we too would seek to draw others into an understanding of the fact that this is serious and this is coming. And may we humble ourselves, submit ourselves before God, who ultimately will indeed win the victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. There is so, so much here, so much to try to understand, so much that is actually just simply beyond our understanding, and we acknowledge that. We acknowledge the fact that we can't understand what all of this is about because of our finite point of view. But Lord, I pray that wouldn't be something that would just cause us to throw up our hands and say, oh, well, but rather it would be something that would cause us to dig in and to understand and to recognize the purpose for which you have given us verses, passages like this, so that we might celebrate your goodness, so that we might celebrate your purpose, that we might celebrate your plan, and that we might be encouraged by the fact that that which you say you will do, you will do. And Lord, part of what you tell us is that you've started to work in us and that you're going to carry that on to completion. And we can take confidence in that, that you're going to cause all things to work together for good. We can take confidence in that. And even as we might look around us in the world that exists, a world that sometimes seems to be going places that we just don't understand, maybe always seems to be going places that we don't understand, that as Daniel does, that we can recognize that that's not going to win the day that things there that are contrary to your purposes and your will are not going to win the day, but that you have control and that you are sovereign and that you are working all things according to your purposes, that we can have confidence they're going to happen because you have a perfect track record. So Lord, as we look around us, I pray that it wouldn't just drive us to anger, that it wouldn't just drive us to, to desire to get even, but rather, Lord, that it would drive us to our knees recognizing that just as the world around us is not marching in the direction that you would have them, we aren't either because of the sin in our lives and that it would drive us to humility and confession that we might walk more closely with you, we pray. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.